Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of multiple sclerosis from the neurology section on medbullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 25-year-old woman presents to the emergency department for poor vision on the left eye. She reports that her symptoms began approximately one week ago, and it has progressively worsened. Her visual deficit is associated with eye pain with movement. She denies having these symptoms in the past, but recalls having urinary incontinence that self-resolved. Physical examination is only remarkable for a significant visual deficit solely affecting the left eye. The rest of the neurological examination is normal. An MRI of the brain and spinal cord enhanced with gadolinium demonstrates a hyperintense lesion affecting her left optic nerve. There is also enhancing and non-enhancing hyperintense lesions in the spinal cord suggestive of demyelinating lesions of different ages. She is admitted to the hospital and is started on three days of intravenous methylprednisolone. Now let's get into the episode. As a quick introduction, the definition of multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disorder leading to demyelination and neurodegeneration. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence of multiple sclerosis, it is more common in women and young adults. Risk factors for multiple sclerosis include age, genetics, and certain environmental factors. In terms of age, 20 to 40 years of age is at highest risk. Genetics involves an HLA-DRB1 locus, and environmental factors can include infection, for example, Epstein-Barr virus, and poor sun exposure. With respect to pathogenesis, multiple sclerosis is believed to be due to a trigger, for example, infection in a susceptible patient, that results in the migration of autoreactive lymphocytes to affect the central nervous system, leading to demyelination, which decreases nerve conduction, thus impairing nerve function, and axonal neurodegeneration, which is mediated by CD8-positive lymphocytes and macrophages. In terms of associated conditions, multiple sclerosis may be seen with other autoimmune diseases, for example, thyroid disease. Moving on to the presentation of multiple sclerosis, clinical presentation depends on where demyelinating plaques are located. If located in the cerebrum, this will manifest with unilateral motor or sensory deficits. If located in the brainstem, this may manifest with diplopia, nystagmus, intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, which is the inability to adduct the eye on lateral gaze with a demyelinating lesion affecting the ipsilateral medial longitudinal fasciculus. Demyelinating plaques in the brainstem may also manifest with vertigo. Demyelinating plaques in the cerebellum will manifest with nystagmus, vertigo, and impaired coordination. In the spinal cord, this will manifest with weakness or sensory changes, bowel and bladder dysfunction, lermite sign, which is paresthesias that radiate down the arms or trunk with neck flexion, and demyelinating plaques in the spinal cord can also manifest with erectile dysfunction. Demyelinating plaques in the optic nerve can manifest with symptoms of optic neuritis, which are vision loss, pain with eye movement, and dyschromatopsia, which is altered color perception. Be aware of the Unthoff phenomenon, which is worsening neurological symptoms in the setting of increased heat, for example, fever and hot weather. Moving on to imaging, MRI of the brain and spinal cord with gadolinium is indicated as the imaging study of choice in the evaluation of multiple sclerosis. Findings include hyperintense lesions in the central nervous system. In terms of studies to obtain in the setting of multiple sclerosis, the diagnosis is made based on the McDonald 2017 criteria. However, to simplify, the diagnosis is based on finding dissemination in time or dissemination in space. As far as dissemination in time, this is characterized as having greater than or equal to two multiple sclerosis attacks at different times. For example, having greater than or equal to two demyelinating lesions of different ages on MRI. Dissemination in space is characterized as having multiple sclerosis lesions in two of four multiple sclerosis specific regions, which are periventricular, juxtacortical, 
infratentorial, and in the spinal cord. Other studies to obtain include cerebrospinal fluid analysis, which is typically used if there's uncertainty in the diagnosis or if one is considering an alternative diagnosis, for example, neuromyelitis optica. Findings on cerebrospinal fluid analysis in the setting of multiple sclerosis includes an elevated IgG index and oligoclonal bands, and know that oligoclonal bands are a nonspecific finding. The differential diagnosis for multiple sclerosis is neuromyelitis optica, and the differentiating factor between neuromyelitis optica and multiple sclerosis is that neuromyelitis optica has the presence of aquaporin-4 antibodies on cerebrospinal fluid testing. Treatment of multiple sclerosis is medical and can include intravenous methylprednisolone, disease-modifying therapy, as well as baclofen or tizanidine. Intravenous methylprednisolone is indicated as the treatment of choice for an acute multiple sclerosis attack. An important comment to mention is that steroids hasten recovery, but it does not improve outcomes. Intravenous methylprednisolone is preferred over oral prednisone in acute multiple sclerosis attacks with optic neuritis. Moving on to disease-modifying therapy, these are steroid-sparing agents used to suppress the immune system in hopes to prevent a future multiple sclerosis attack. There are multiple medications such as beta interferons, fingolimod, and natalizumab. However, keep in mind that natalizumab is associated with the development of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy and testing for antibodies against JC virus is recommended before starting this medication. Finally, in terms of baclofen or tizanidine, this is indicated as first-line therapy for spasticity. Finally, complications to mention about multiple sclerosis include increased risk of infection due to being on immunosuppressants and disability. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads... A 25-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with severe left-sided retroorbital pain. Her pain has progressively worsened over the course of two days and worsens with eye movement. She reports a loss of central vision and says that colors seem washed out. She states that she has never experienced this before. Physical examination is notable for visual acuity of 2200 in the left eye and 2030 in the right eye. Fundoscopy examination shows a normal fundus. Both of her pupils are equal and reactive to light. However, when light is swung from the right eye to the left eye, both pupils dilate. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? And the choices are 1. Humphrey Visual Field Analyzer 2. Lumbar Puncture 3. MRI Brain and Spine 4. Serum Oligoclonal Bands and 5. Visual Evoked Potentials The correct answer to this question is 3, MRI of the brain and spine. So the symptoms of optic neuritis, for example, ocular pain with movement, color desaturation, and a relatively afferent pupillary defect elucidated by the swinging light test are highly concerning for multiple sclerosis, but not sufficient for a clinical diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, as there was only one attack on history and the current presentation. The most appropriate next step in management is obtaining an MRI of the brain and spinal cord. Multiple sclerosis is an immune-mediated demyelinating disease affecting the brain and spinal cord, that is, the central nervous system. Symptomatology reflects where the inflammatory demyelinating process has occurred. For example, optic nerve involvement leads to optic neuritis. The diagnosis is made clinically with an MRI of the brain and spinal cord, with gadolinium being the test of choice to support the diagnosis. Typical lesion areas suggestive of multiple sclerosis on MRI are in the periventricular or juxtacortical regions, corpus callosum, infratentorial regions, for example, pons and cerebellum, and spinal cord. The MRI can determine if there is dissemination in time by demonstrating two or more lesions of different ages and dissemination in space, 
with lesions being found in different areas of the central nervous system. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, the Humphrey Visual Field Analyzer would not be appropriate since the patient is presenting with a multiple sclerosis attack. The current ophthalmologic examination is sufficient, and what will confirm the diagnosis is an MRI of the brain and spinal cord with gadolinium. Answer two, lumbar puncture is not required when the patient's symptoms are suggestive for multiple sclerosis, and the diagnosis is supported by MRI. A lumbar puncture would be indicated if the diagnosis could not be made based on clinical history or MRI findings. Oligoclonal bands and an elevated IgG index are seen in most cases. That is greater than 90%. Answer four, serum oligoclonal bands are collected at the same time oligoclonal bands are collected from the cerebrospinal fluid. Oligoclonal band testing is reserved for when a lumbar puncture is needed to elucidate the diagnosis when the clinical presentation is atypical. And finally, answer five, visual evoked potentials are used to determine subclinical central nervous system dysfunction. This patient's visual deficits are localized to the optic nerve based on physical examination, and thus visual evoked potential will have little diagnostic utility. To leave you with a bullet summary, multiple sclerosis is a clinical diagnosis with an MRI of the brain and spinal cord being the diagnostic study of choice to support the diagnosis. And moving on to the final question, a 36-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with severe left eye pain with associated vision loss. She denies any physical or chemical trauma to the eye, recent use of eye drops, or foreign body sensation within the affected eye. Approximately two weeks ago, she had an upper respiratory tract infection that was symptomatically managed with ibuprofen. She reports that eight months ago, she experienced bilateral lower extremity weakness and urinary retention and was admitted to the hospital where she was appropriately treated. She did not follow up for outpatient treatment. She has no past medical history and is only taking a daily multivitamin. On physical examination, she has consensual pupillary response when light is shined on the right eye. When light is swung from the right eye to the left eye, there is a relative dilation of both pupils. Her visual acuity in the right eye is 2040 and in the left eye is 2200. Her extraocular movements are intact. However, pain is produced with eye movement most notably involving the left eye. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment option for this patient's symptoms? And the choices are 1. Cyclophosphamide, 2. Methylprednisolone, 3. Acrolizumab, 4. Prednisone, and 5. Rituximab. The correct answer to this question is 2. Methylprednisolone. So this young patient with optic neuritis, presenting with afferent pupillary defect, painful eye movements, and decreased visual acuity, as well as a prior history of transverse myelitis, that is with bilateral lower extremity weakness and urinary retention, is most likely presenting with a multiple sclerosis attack, or flare, and should be appropriately treated with intravenous methylprednisolone. To quickly review once again, multiple sclerosis is an immune-mediated demyelinating disorder affecting the central nervous system. Patients can present with optic neuritis, which is due to demyelination affecting the optic nerve. Optic neuritis presents with decreased visual acuity, red desaturation, where the color red appears pink, orange, or washed out, and pain with eye movements. On physical examination, there is an afferent pupillary defect. When light is shined in the unaffected eye, there is consensual pupillary constriction. However, when swung to the affected eye, there is a relative pupillary dilation. Both oral prednisone and intravenous methylprednisolone are efficacious in hastening recovery. Nevertheless, intravenous methylprednisolone is preferred since oral prednisone is associated with an increased risk of developing recurrent optic neuritis. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, cyclophosphamide is an alkylating medication that cross-links DNA strands and impairs DNA synthesis. 
This is not used in acute multiple sclerosis flares. However, it is useful in drug regimens to manage certain malignancies, for example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Answer 3, acrolizumab is a monoclonal antibody against CD20-positive B cells. It is a disease-modifying agent used to decrease the rate of future multiple sclerosis flares and to decrease the ratio of accumulation of demyelinating lesions. This medication is not used to treat an acute multiple sclerosis flare. Answer 4, prednisone is an oral medication that suppresses the immune system by a multitude of mechanisms, for example, decreased leukocyte migration. It is associated with an increased risk of developing recurrent optic neuritis in patients with optic neuritis. Patients have better outcomes with IV methylprednisolone. Finally, answer 5, rituximab is a monoclonal antibody against CD20-positive B cells. It is not used in the management of acute multiple sclerosis flares. It is useful in the treatment of certain malignancies, for example, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and vascular tubes, for example, granulomatosis with polyangitis. To leave you with a bullet summary, the first-line treatment of an acute multiple sclerosis attack with optic neuritis is with intravenous methylprednisolone. That's all for this review about multiple sclerosis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.